internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, I'm joined today by now, Bob. Do you go by? I know you're Bob Mata Jr. Right? Do you go by on the on the podcast? Do you do you tell everybody you're a junior? Or are you just Bob Mata? No, uh, that's a great question, actually, Bob. Uh, no, I I just go by Bob Mata, and because that's primarily my father skipped protocol, so um, <laughs> technically it's supposed to be the second person named after the first person would actually be junior my dad didn't uh-huh. like junior he didn't think it sounded regal enough so he skipped that entirely and went right to the second so which is okay technically would be the third so <laughs> it's a weird thing my dad's just like that though so yeah so technically i'm, I'm a robert michael mata the second and uh i just skipped the whole second part because as you can tell that's a long story to have to tell people they're like oh yeah you got another got another guy named bob I'm like, no, just one right to me. You just skipped junior. <laughs> I so, like yeah. the second. This the second is very regal. It, it is. It's it's definitely a little more regal than uh junior. But uh as far as like when I speak about my father, I do refer to him as senior. Um typically just to kind of differentiate between him and I in the pod. Have you thought about referring to him as Robert Mata the first? I mean, yeah. I have, Um, (laughs) just as kind of like, uh, you know, a a little bit of tit for tat type thing there. I I certainly could do that. I don't know if that's, uh, I mean, I know Kings used to do that, but I don't know if that's right for just, you know, good old Americans. I don't know if we do that, you know, since that was kind of the whole thing. They do it on Game of Thrones. He would be like Robert (laughs) Mata, first of his name, something like that. That's right. Which, you know, I was a big Game of Thrones fan, uh, you know, up until the final season when they, you know kind of like outpaced uh you know martin's work so and the showrunners <laughs> right. destroyed the show at the end but you know i'll digress on that <laughs> you're not the uh, you, you you are not alone in that opinion yeah so so you're from illinois you're a criminal defense attorney you've been doing that for what 20 years yeah 20 years long time man yeah i, I like to consider myself a uh recovering criminal defense attorney <laughs> <laughs> what does what does that mean? Uh, it, it's a brutal, brutal profession. Um, you know, kind of going in on a uh, daily basis for now going on twenty one years, and just kind of dealing with everything that criminal defense, like the clients, the, where it seems like from an outsider's perspective, they might be the worst thing about handling criminal cases from the defense side. I mean, really it's, it's like kind of the crushing, um, red tape and just power of the state that really is what kind of grinds you down from the defense side of it more than, you know, the clients themselves. It it just gets, it's disheartening. You know, uh, my wife who happens to be my partner of 20 years, I met her in law school and we, you know, formed a, a firm right out of law school, hung a shingle, which was scary as hell. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I had my father to kind of call if I'm like, Hey dad, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. Can you give me some tips? You know, so I had that kind of in my back pocket, but nonetheless, it was still, you know, uh, intimidating because you don't know procedurally what the hell you're doing coming out of law school. It's like they're, they're teaching you black letter law so that you can pass the bar exam. I mean, that's really the entire intent of law school, not to teach you how to practice law. So procedurally, all the things that you have to do in order to successfully practice, you've got to learn, you know, and that's why most people typically don't hang a shingle right out of law school. They'll, they'll go to a firm or join the PD or the state's attorney's office to, to, you know, and then I always knew I wanted to litigate, you know, I, I was going to be a trial lawyer. That's what my dad did. That's what I wanted to do. And I thought I'd be decent at it. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's challenging. So when I say I'm recovering, it, it, it's like, I, not only you burnt out, but you're just like 
it's it's soul crushing a little bit, you know, um, just because typically everybody hates defense attorneys, despite the incredibly important role we play in the criminal justice system. You know, everybody's got us pegged as, you know, bottom feeder scumbags, you know, and that's just not what we do, you know. So, and I, and I'm sure we'll chat about it a bit in the pod, but, uh, you know, I make it a, a point in my podcast to try to explain exactly in reality what defense attorneys do. So, yeah, when I say I'm recovering, <laughs> it's the same as like being a booze addict for, you know, 25 years and kind of being done with it and just you're, you're trying to, like, for me, it's I'm mentally recovering from that as I transition into podcasting full time, which um, I feel fortunate that I'm able to do, you know? So it's, it's tough, man. It's a tough gig, defense attorney. Well, you know, fortunately for you and with my audience, which a lot of the true crime binge audience came from truth and justice, we hate def- uh, prosecutors. We love defense God attorneys. Bless so you, God yeah. bless you, Bob Ruff. God bless you. It's always the prosecutors that are the bad guys in our stories. <laughs> Man, that's that's why I love your show. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the uh, you know questions I always like to ask defense attorneys, because it just seems like my wife asks this all the time. Anytime we're watching a case and someone who appears to be clearly guilty has, you know, a defense attorney just standing up there, just taking swings the best they can. Right. Trying to defend a guilty client. She's always right. like, how do they do that? How do they defend someone who, if they, if they believe or know that they're guilty? And I want to get your answer to that. Um, but I want to point out to you, one, I think, one, I don't think I've said it yet. The podcast, Bob's podcast is called Defense Diaries, but you're in the first season covered the John Wayne Gacy case, which we're going to talk about today. But I mean, that's like one of the ultimate, I mean, Bob's dad. Bob the first of his name, Mata, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> defense was the defense attorney for John Wayne Gacy, right? Uh, back what was that, nineteen seventy eight, something like that? Yeah, he he was finally nabbed in seventy eight, December of seventy eight, and then uh, you know, typical you know legal process shit. Trial ended up starting in like uh, February in earnest, in early February of eighty. So, and then it was okay. uh, it was about a five week trial. So, um, you know, uh, all told, yeah, he was dealing with, uh, Gacy for, you know, like two years, uh, post arrest and then leading up to trial and through trial. Yeah. And that's gotta be tough. So that's, I mean, there's, so you came into this, I guess, I guess he did know he was guilty because he, the defense was basically insanity, really. Exactly. But so, but you came into, it, it wasn't like you were blind coming into, being an attorney thinking this is something that would you'd never have to deal with. Certainly you have. Oh, How God. does a defense attorney deal with going especially, you know, it's one thing to make plea deals and and, and yeah. you know try to give them give the best, but it's another to have to have you ever had to actually go in and litigate someone who's pleading innocent and you feel like they're probably guilty. How do you <laughs> handle that? Yeah, uh, a lot of times. Um so <sighs> kind of the three things that that the defendant has completely within their purview meaning that it's their choice are number one to plead guilty or not guilty number two to choose whether or not they want a bench trial or a jury trial and then finally is whether or not they want to take the stand or not and you know um be a witness in their their own defense so as far as that situation where I have clients that come in and I'm looking at the police reports and I'm like, man, you're, you know, this is a tough case for you. You know, I mean, like, cause I'm a straight shooter. I don't, I don't, I don't bullshit my clients. You know, that's not my game. Um, you know, I say, look, th- this is what we've got going against us. They've got some pretty strong evidence here. You know, I think I can attack this. I think I can attack that. I think they're going to be able to get this in. You know, I mean, it, in terms of trying to figure out evidentiary wise, what the state's going to be able to get in in terms of what they're producing and what they can get in are two separate things. So, you know, if I tell the guy, I'm like, look, man, you know, I'm, I'm relatively silver tongued. I'm pretty good at what I do. I'm going to be able to go in there. I'm going to fight like a motherfucker for you. But at the end of the day, you know, I wouldn't be optimistic. I need you to be realistic about that. And then you need to weigh what the offer of the state is right now in terms of whether or not you're going to pay a trial tax at the end of the day. So, which essentially, if you don't know what a trial tax is, it's basically with the judge when they, when it comes down to sentencing in Illinois, they're like, you know what? You should have pled out on this case, buddy. And now you've wasted four weeks of the court's time. So I'm going to tack another two years on just because you suck, you know, type of thing. So that's what trial right. tax is. So 
you know, if I cannot convince them and I'm, I'm typically pretty convincing, um, if I really believe that they're not doing what's in their best interest, I, I typically can convince them to say, Hey, look, man, no, no one wants to go to the joint. You know, I get it, you know, but the alternative is, is that you may end up in the joint for two, three, four years longer than, than what's on the table right now. So, you know, and, but ultimately that's their decision. You know, I can't force them. So if I'm in a situation where the guy's like, I want to go to trial, I don't give a shit. You know, at, at that point, there's two things that you can rely on in terms of hoping against hope. Number one, that the state screws up in their case in chief, you know, that they just botch the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, number two, that you get a, a jury that for whatever reason likes your client and, you know, they basically come in and rule against the law. You know, they, they find against the law, they ignore the law. And they, it's jury nullification, you know, like where, where you know your guy's done. Those are your only two things that you can hang your hat on. And in the hopes of the state's going to screw up the case, they're not going to get like key evidence in or the jury loves your client. Because typically in those cases where I've got a guy that, de- you know, is demanding to go to trial, those are the guys that always want to testify. And, you know, which is always tough for a criminal defense attorney. You know, it's like typically you can't help yourself. But human nature for all of us says, you know, if I was accused of some shit that I didn't do, I'd be like, there is no way on earth that I'm not getting on the stand and defending myself. I am not going down without the jury hearing my side of shit, you know? So that mentality exists. And, you know, typically I don't, depending on the case and depending on what the facts are, I don't ask if they did it or not, you know, it's not like the movies and the TV, you know, where I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm your lawyer. You have to tell me, did you do it? I mean, I'll look through the evidence. I'll look through discovery and I'll, I'll have a pretty good idea whether or not they did it or they didn't. What Mm -hmm. I care about is what the state's saying. And, And the reason for that is if I ever need to put that guy on the stand, if I can craft a defense that I think is reasonable and I'm going to, I'm going to put it forward and I need that guy to be able to testify. I can't have him having told me, yeah, I committed the murder, but you know, you're the lawyer. So figure the shit out now. It's like, it's done. I'm not going to suborn perjury. You you screwed yourself by telling me that you did it. Now there's no way you can take the stand, you know? So in those types of situations where I've got a guy that I know is guilty and I know it's been a long answer, but the bottom line is I try to focus on the constitution. You know, I mean, really the role of the defense attorney in the criminal justice system is to police the police. That is really what I do. I, I am making sure in every single case that the cops did their jobs right, that they, that they abided by the fourth and fifth, sixth amendments, specifically the fourth when I'm trying to quash motions and trying to, to quash arrests or suppress evidence because of bad searches. That's what people don't get. It's like, oh, the guy got off on a technicality. That's not a technicality. That's your fourth amendment right in action. That guy might be a piece of shit, mm-hmm. but you're not. And when the cops come to you and come knocking at your door, do you want them just to be able to kick it in and come in? No, none of us do. That's not what we want. That's not the country we live in. So what we do is we make sure that the cops are following the law. In every case, I do that in drug cases, murder. I, I make sure that what they've done in terms of their investigation was by the book. Because that's all we have, frankly. I mean, if, right. if the Constitution no longer matters to anybody... It's going to be the wild west, man, which, you know, I mean, I might be down with cause I love Westerns and shit, but <laughs> it seems like, it, 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 you know, that it would be, it would be a tough way to live, you know? So really at the end of the day, if I've got a guy that's just done, you know, that I, I know there's no way that I'm going to be able to argue my way out of it for this guy, you know, that's what I do. I focus on the constitution and, and the issues at hand. And I, I try to litigate the cases is, is as well as I can leading up to trial and then to trial, you know, I put on the evidence I have and I try to cross examine the hell out of their, their people and confuse the jury. Cause if you, you know, they, they say if, if the facts aren't on your side and the law is on your side, you, you got to try to get the jury to like you more than they like the other guy, which right. sadly, <laughs> but there's some truth to it. You know, I mean, there really is. So yeah, it, it's in that, but that's part of it. So tell your wife it's, it's hard. It's <laughs> It's one of the hardest things about being a defense attorney, you know, and, and the other reason that I don't ask up front, like if a client did it, is I don't want my morality getting in the way of me being able to do my job properly. So with, as busy as you are with 
with, with all of your defense attorney work, what made you decide? Because you started the podcast last year, 2021. What made you decide to go ahead and, and jump into the podcasting world? So, you know, I've been sitting on these tapes for 30 plus years. My dad gave them to me like 30 years ago. And, you know, over the course of the last few decades, I've, you know, thought about various things to do with them. And I was like, well, uh, so then I had reached out to Joe Berlinger, who's a documentarian when he dropped his Bundy tapes, uh, thing on Netflix. It was like a, a you know, a four or five part or maybe six. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I decided, you know, I'm, I want to send this guy a flyer. I'm, I'm just going to send him an email. Maybe somebody on his staff will look at it. I'll be like, Hey man, you know, I got these tapes that I think are, might be of interest to you. They're, you know, 15 hours of these, uh, attorney client privilege tapes, which Gacy waved cause he was a fucking lunatic. Um, you know, that I think are way better than the tapes that you use for Bundy. So I was expecting to get some kind of whatever, you know, email back in a couple of weeks. He, he like Berlinger emails him back in like five minutes. He's like, I'm all over that. You know, like that does sound amazing. I'm definitely interested. So then I worked with those guys for about nine months trying to work out a deal. I couldn't, couldn't get it done. They just wanted to license the tapes. Um, you know, they didn't, you know, really have any concept of me being involved in any way. And, and I didn't necessarily care at that point. Prior to that, I had tinkered with the idea of doing a podcast. I had fallen in love with podcasting um, when I first listened to Serial, like many of us, when I, when I first heard that. And I, I've always been a radio guy. You know, I'm like that dork, you know, AM radio guy, <laughs> you know, just listens to the radio a lot. You know, it's like my kids will always remember re- having like sports talk radio or whatever, you know, like on in the car constantly. Like that'll be their memory of me. Um, so I, I had talked to some of my friends that are in the music industry about the concept of maybe doing a podcast. Like, oh, you should do it. It's amazing. Your source material is so good. So it, at that point, you know, I really started thinking about doing a podcast. So the deal with Netflix fell apart. And then I had a deal with AMC that was on the board. And I, I couldn't, like, they, they were better on the money. But, you know, they were talking about doing a three or four parter. And, you know, to me... The historic value of the tapes, um, you know, for as awful of a human being as the man was, the fact of the matter is it's, it's a woven part of the fabric of our society. I mean, that case is just one of the 10, 15 top, you know, criminal cases in the history of the United States it just is. So there's historical value to that. It was my position that I wanted to be able to get out to the public for whatever reason that we all have the, you know, kind of morbid curiosity that we have with, with true crime. I wanted the people to be able to hear as much of the tapes as possible. And I know that what would happen, like if Netflix or A&E or AMC would have done it, you know, they would have been hearing some snippets, you know, probably three minutes total. I've played interwoven within the narrative of my story, you know, probably 12 hours, you know, (laughs) So I've played a bulk uh-huh. of the tapes just woven into, and it's not me pressing a button or Darren pressing a button, you know, it's, it's masterfully woven into the narrative of the case, you know? So, so that, that's kind of what made me do it. I decided to kind of, and my wife was supportive, you know, I'm like, look, if I do this, I'm not going to half-ass it. That's not, that's not how I do shit. You know, it's like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it well. And then, you know, I was very fortunate in the sense that as much as COVID sucked, generally for me my producer and my my one of my closest friends prior to him being my producer was out of work because he was a music industry guy from down in new orleans and that was dead for 19 months so i called darren darren wood is my producer um and i said d man you know i'm I'm thinking about doing this podcast and it I'm like, you know, I have no idea how to use a DAW. I, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And I'm, mm-hmm. I said, would you be interested? And he said, book me a flight. And so from that point forward, um, you know, I flew him in and, and we started developing the concept and the show. And, you know, the, the, the thing with season one is we've been doing it on the fly, you know, and, and you as a, a creator, it's hard, you know, especially because mm-hmm. we're interviewing people. It's not like, I'm just watching discovery ID and regurgitating what they said or laughing about the things that they say on there. And, you know, it's like, 
I got all the police reports. I went down to the Daily Center, which is the main criminal, uh, you know, civil and criminal clerk's offices down there. And I, I got the whole damn file, man. You know, I did the work. I, I dove in, got the whole transcript. My wife and I were sitting there scanning for days, you know, scanning the transcript of the trial. And so, you know, that was kind of it. I, I was so burnt out on the law side of it. And I didn't want to get to the point where I wasn't going to be effectively representing my clients. You know, I'm never, I would never do that where I'm, I'm a disservice to the people that I'm representing. You know, that's, it's not, I, I would never do that. So as soon as I started really telling my wife, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm getting done. I'm, <laughs> I'm beyond burnt out. You know, I just, I feel like I've got to do something else. And then this presented itself and I knew that I had just great source material. It was going to be a matter of, and I, and I knew I could write, you know, as far as the mm -hmm. scripting would go, I knew that I'd perform, um, or I, that I'd be, uh, be able to draft quality scripts, you know, that they'd be, I'd make, uh, you know, for an interesting story and that, that. I'm a good storyteller because I've been a criminal defense attorney, trial attorney for 20 years. It's what I do. I mean, when you're in court, you're telling a story, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's exactly, you know, what our role is at trial is to be a storyteller to 12 people that have never heard the story and to tell it more effectively than the other guy does or the other gal does. So, so kind of like from that, you know, I decided to, to instead of thinking about it, for two more years, I just decided to pull the trigger and do it. And I started investing money in the equipment and, you know, I got really lucky that my friend was available to help produce it. And, you know, creatively we're in lockstep in terms of how we want the podcast to sound, you know, what, what tone did I want to take? I wasn't, I wasn't going to do Gacy. It wasn't going to be about Gacy. Yes. I have the tapes and yes, the tapes are going to be played, but we've all heard that story way too many times. So my goal was to come in and focus on the investigation, how they got him under arrest, the victims, most importantly, the victims. It's like I've 43 years, this case has been a part of my life and I know nothing about the victims. It's insane to me. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the, the people that matter the most in that case are like footnotes in everything I've ever seen or read about that case, you know? And it's like, I, I guess Casey's the interesting thing, I guess. You know, but to me, he's not, you know, the people that, that lost their lives, these 33 young guys that lost their lives are what matters to me. So th those were the things that we focus on. And then the trial, you know, and, and those were the three things. And Gacy's kind of like the ominous, you know, floating shadow that's always kind of in the background, but I wasn't going to make him the focus. And I think that I've, you know, 33 episodes in, man, I think I've, I've stuck to that, you know? I mean, certainly I couldn't have a podcast with the tapes and not talk about Gacy ever, but you know, I, I I'm, sh it's surely not glowing. You know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not raving about what a great serial right. killer Gacy was, you know, it's like, it's, that's not what I'm doing. So, so that was kind of it. It was basically the, the short answers I was burning out and I had this opportunity to do this and I thought got a decent voice I can write and I got good source material. So I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, and that and it's it's super interesting. And the source material is, which you've, you've alluded to, to be clear that you know from when your dad was Casey's defense attorney, you have fifteen hours of never, never before heard audio from his pretrial interviews with his attorneys uh, that you bring out in season one of Defense Diaries, which is the season one title is the Gacy tapes, uh, obviously. So let's break for any, for people that don't know, break down for us. John Wayne Gacy's case, you know, he, as you, as you said, there was, there were 33 victims, um, 28 of them have been conclusively identified. Uh, there was, you know, there was like 26 that were found buried in his crawl space at his house. Three were other places on the property. And then he right. says that there was four that were dumped in a river. Correct. Those are the four that weren't, weren't necessarily identified. So go ahead and break down like like what was you know you know when was his his kind of reign of terror how did he get caught what was yep. you know, just kind of break us down the beats of the case. So John Wayne Gacy, um, he was born in Illinois. Uh, he ended up moving in the in the sixties to Iowa. Okay, and while he was in Iowa, he married for the first time um, uh, to this woman named Marilyn. 
and or Marlene, depends on who you're asking. Uh, at any rate, he had two kids with her. While he is married with his wife, he is doing what he always ends up doing in terms of who he was as a person, which was a very outgoing, very uh, demonstrative, jovial-seeming guy who was really involved with the community. Like, more than BTK, like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm like, nah. Casey was like a whole different beast. It was like this guy, for all intents and purposes, seemed like a completely normal human being, like all the time, like day and night. And he was very successful initially coming out of the box because his first wife, her father owned Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises. He ended up managing three of those franchises. He was also involved with the JCs. While involved with the JCs, a local um, legislator's son, was raped by Gacy. And uh, that was when people read about the sodomy charge that he was nailed with. And, and not only did he, he rape the young Donald Voorhees, um, he then hired a guy to beat the shit out of Donald Voorhees in order to get Donald Voorhees to not testify against him at trial, which he then picked up that charge as well because, you know, the guy gave you know he gave himself up immediately it's a small town in iowa they all know each other he's like yeah he came to me and he paid me x amount of dollars to beat him up to intimidate him so gacy ends up getting sentenced to 10 years in 1968 he ends up doing 18 months of that 10 years and you know the when the sodomy is is not accurate as to i mean he he violently raped this kid you know this wasn't like two guys having consensual anal sex and it's just a law that's still on the books. Like, nah, he, he, because it was a man-on-man crime, they weren't going to call it rape. You know what I'm saying? That's just not how it worked back in the day, you know? So they're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, he, he had anal sex with them. We're going we're gonna to charge him with sodomy. So it, it, it's not putting the actual horrific nature of the crime on display for the public. So he ends up getting out in 18 months and Illinois ends up approving his parole and allows him to move to Illinois. So he moves to Illinois um, and his mother's living up here. And he, and this, he moves in 1970, I think like maybe even earlier, maybe 69, I think. So 18 months he was, so 70, I'm going to say he moved back to Illinois in 70. His mom's up here with him. He ends up buying the house at 83. Uh, 8213 Somerdale, which is the house of horrors. Um, and he moves his mom in. And in 72, he also marries his second wife because his first wife obviously divorced him when he was convicted of sodomy. So, and just in case anybody's wondering, he never has spoken to his kids. Like they, like that side, like shielded them. I, We've been wanting to try to get a hold of them. And I'm like, man, I, I don't know if I want to be the guy, like if they've shielded the children from the fact that this guy was their father, I don't want to be the guy disclosing that, you know, right. like ruining their lives late in life. So from 72, he buys the house in Somerdale. So he's got his wife, Carol, Carol's two children from a prior marriage, Carol's mother. So Gacy's mother-in-law and his mother all living in the house with them and displays Illinois. And the first murder on record, um, because, and I say that because I don't believe for one moment that he only killed 33 people. I, I, I don't think that he went from getting out of prison or prior to, you know, I, I've been reading things that this guy was killing before, like when he was young, um, unsubstantiated, and I'm, I'm fact driven. You know, I'm not going to sit there. You know, so, 72 is the first on record killing, and it's this young man, Tim McCoy, picked him up at a, a, a Greyhound station. And um, the kid was like there in between stops. He was heading up to, he was coming from Iowa, going up to Michigan or Minnesota. I can't remember one of the two. And, you know, they stopped in Chicago, which is the major hub. Kid had a couple hours to kill, just walking around, you know, you know bright eyed, looking at the big city. And Gacy, does what he does. He snatches him up, brings the kid back. Um, you know, they have sexual relations. Uh, Gacy claims that he wakes up the next morning and the kid's standing over him with a knife. They f- wrestle over the knife and he stabs the kid, you know, in self-defense. That's what G- Gacy's story is. Um, and then he proceeds to bury him in his crawl space. 
And that is the first time that he kills anybody. And Carol starts complaining about the smell in the house. She's like, what, what does that smell? And he's like, oh, uh, you know, it's the, the earth, the crawl spaces, you know, it's dirt. So, you know, it's just that earthy, you know, musty smell. He's like, I'll, I'll figure something out. So he ends up while Carol and the other four ladies and the kids are, <laughs> he's got this full house. Um, you know, he goes down and he pours concrete slab over that first victim. The second victim, which you alluded to, uh, was a kid. Now they say that f- three years went by. That's what the claim is. So 75 is when he allegedly next kills his next victim, which is this kid, John Buckovich, who was not a street kid. Um, he was a kid who worked for him. So Gacy had two MOs. One was to pick up young kids who would kind of, you know, young men, all men, um, or young boys, depending on the, you know, which victim you're talking about that had kind of lost their way and were out hustling, you know, and, and remember the time frame is 72 to 78. So this is the seventies, different times altogether in terms of everything, in terms of how homosexuality was viewed in terms of, you know, us letting our kids go out to play in terms of, you know, we didn't understand the dangers of hitchhiking and all that stuff that was going on in the seventies, which, you know, I talk about in the podcast came to an, an abrupt end the day that Gacy was, you know, was arrested. That that's, that's when it ended, you know, hitchhiking mm-hmm. disappeared like a fart in the wind. The day that Gacy was arrested, people were like, no, you know, the days that we could just say, mom, you know, I'm going out to play, be back by dark. That ended the day that Gacy was arrested. You know, it's like my kids, I always know where they're at. You know, it wasn't like that when we were growing up. It was different. So kills Bukovich, buries him in the garage, again, pours concrete over him um, over the course of the next you know, and we're talking, if that's true, they, they say that there was one more victim some, sometime between 72 and 75. And uh, he's one of the unnamed victims at this point. And um, so if we believe that to be true from 75, July 75 through 78, he killed 30, 30 people. He buried uh, 26 in the crawl space under his house, um, which has a clearance of about two and a half feet. And then um, he threw four in the Displains River. And this is over, again, the course of really three years, if you believe that's how many that he killed. Um, I personally don't believe that. Um, and that's kind of where we're going to be looking into that in part two of the Gacy tapes, like after we're doing a different case. But at some point, I've had too many people reach out to me during the course of this podcast, which I knew would happen that have information, you know, and there's other mm-hmm. properties where he had a lot of access to and strange things were seen that, you, you know, we're, we're going to try to fight for the victims and see if we can find that there's some more people out there because I'm, I'm fairly certain that there are. So, you know, long and the short of it, you know, kind of his, his moniker is the killer clown. Um, you know, Gacy was the, the guy who would dress up as a clown and go entertain children at you know, children's hospitals and, you know, do other events like that where he was clowning. And, uh, yeah, he was an an absolute arch criminal, like an apex predator of, you know, like the worst kind in terms of serial killers that have been out there. I mean, this guy to me is the scariest because of just how normal he seemed. I mean, he had everyone fooled everyone. You know, how did he handle the, I know after the, the first victim, he said they went and poured concrete over the body. Well, then he buried 25 more under the, the crawl space. Was that, did he, did he put concrete over all of them? How did he deal with the smell with the rest of them? Lime and not lie. L I M E like the citrus fruit. Um, that is used to, uh, get rid of the smell, like typically for decomposing animals, but it's equally effective. So he used muriatic acid to decay the flesh more quickly, and then he would pour lime down there. And that pretty much took care of it. So no, he did not. The only concrete pad he ever put down under there was the first kid. The rest of them were all just there. He ends up divorcing Carol in 76. So it was a free-for-all. Free-for-all with these two guys that I talk about quite a bit on the podcast. He had two employees, Cram and Rossi. And these guys both lived with him during, 
the years of 76 and 77. So I'm pretty hot on these guys. Like, you know, cause Casey did all of his killing. He'd go out. If he wasn't killing somebody that worked for him and, and I, and I kind of jumped off point, but he, he had two MOs, one kind of the kids who had lost their way and were out sometimes selling themselves for sex to survive, you know, kind of out there on the streets. And then the other kids were kids that worked for him, you know, or the kids that were told under the guise that I'm going to give you a job, come back to my house, we'll fill out an application and, you know, kind of go from there. Cause like Gacy's third question to anybody is, are you liberal sexually? <laughs> that That's what he would ask these kids. You know, it's like, he, he was like, as soon as he, he, as soon as he was in that mode, he was in that mode, you know? So, so that's kind of long and short. So at the end of the day, the last boy that he killed, a very handsome, strapping young kid, 16 year old kid named Robert Peast. And Gacy slipped off course. He didn't follow his MO, his, his MO of finding kids that were kind of unaccounted for as far as their parents were concerned. And they just, you know, they were kind of out there doing their own thing. You know, the, that was who he was real successful with killing and not having any kind of law enforcement blowback coming on him. And Rob Peast was not that kid. The kid was, you know, star, star athlete, uh, had an after school job that he was working. The particular night that he went missing, Casey happened to be doing, because he was a contractor, uh, he happened to be doing a remodel job of this pharmacy that this kid was working at. So, you know, he goes in and, and Gacy, like nothing's happenstance with him. Like there's not just, you know, he saw this kid as soon as he walked in. And so he starts going over to the owner of the pharmacy and starts talking real, you know, real loudly. Oh yeah. You know, I'm looking, this is in December, right? So he's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to hire some young guys, you know, paying like five to seven bucks an hour for the summer jobs. Of course, Rob hears it. You know, and Gacy ends up leaving that night, but he, he leaves, he forgets his date, his appointment book, which he called his Bible at the pharmacy. He gets back home and displays Phil Torf, who's the owner of the pharmacy, calls him and says, hey, John, you forgot your book here. He's like, oh shit, I need that. Jumps back in his car, except he switches vehicles. So he's now in one of his vans, drives back over and uh, no. I take that back. He was in the van initially. He was now in one of his Oldsmobiles, which all look like cop cars. They all have two spotlights. They all have a CB in them. They all have the CB radio. I mean, and they're all black. They all, they look like old Chicago undercover cop cars mm-hmm. by, you know, that's no accident. So goes back, picks up the thing, the book and he, and Rob sees him come back in. And then Rob's mother had come that evening because it was her birthday and she was picking Rob up to celebrate that night. And Rob says, mom, just wait. I got to, I got to run and talk to this contractor guy about a job for the summer because the kid was saving up to buy a car. He was turning 50, either he was 15 turning 16 or he was 16 and just looking to save the money to buy the car. I I believe that he was 16, like in two months after he was killed or three months. So he, he ends up following this guy out. Everyone in the pharmacy hears that he's going to talk to the contractor. Now, no one sees him leave with Gacy. No one sees him get in the car with Gacy, but circumstantially, it's kind of like, you know, you fall asleep and there's no snow on the ground. You wake up, there's snow on the ground. You didn't see it, but you know, it snowed last night. So it was kind of the same thing with, with Gacy. So where Chicago police had completely shit the bed for years on this case in terms of every other kid whose parents were on top of it and were calling repeatedly saying, my kid is missing. Check this guy that he used to work for. You know I mean? There, I hammer the Chicago police in my, in my podcast because they deserve it. It, 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 You know, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the cops now, but then it was unbelievable. So displays was not that, you know, they were, they were all over this. So this Lieutenant Kozenzak, whose son happened to go to school at the same school that Rob Peast went to, took a very personal interest in the case, like kind of beyond what any kind of law enforcement guy should, should do in terms of, working a case. You shouldn't get personally involved. He did. So for 10 days, they basically surveil him. They, they search his house the day after they go and get a warrant to search his house the day after peace goes missing. So peace goes missing. His mother's like at the police station by 11 o'clock that night saying, find my son. We know who, we know who took him, go over to the house and find my son. So they do that night. They drive over, they figure out who Gacy is 
from obviously the owner of the pharmacy. They go over there. And, you know, of course, Gacy denies it. They don't have a search warrant. He doesn't have to invite them in the house. They don't get in the house. They're like, yeah, we need, we need you to come in for an interview. And he's like, well, my uncle's in the hospital. I can't do it tonight. I'll, I'll come by tomorrow. So that, that turns into the 13th. During the course of the evening of the 12th is when he disposes of the body. He shows up at the police station and displays at 3 a.m. covered in mud, which they note in their police reports. And then he's, a, you know, his cousin's back there. It's like three in the morning, man. No, he's not here. He's like, come back in the morning. So he comes back while he's in custody on December 13th. They finish the complaint for search warrant. They get in front of the judge. They get the warrant granted and they go search his house and they don't find shit. They don't find anything relating to Rob Peace. Now they find some things that seem to be indicative of other things going on. Like they find a class ring, but it's not Rob's initials. They find handcuffs they find a bunch of books in the attic you know about kill all the pretty boys and you know, just just some stuff that they're like oh man this this guy seems like it might be the guy you know and then they they get the ping on the, the sodomy charge because back then it wasn't like it is now it's like you don't have then they they didn't have the leads like you know the cops use now where they just plug in a name and boom you know you've got like a national database of wherever a particular person may have committed a crime it wasn't like that in, in 78 you know it was way more old school so they end up getting that information so they've got the information that he was convicted of sodomy in 68 and he was the last guy to have seen rob peace so from that you know they follow him for 10 days they really don't find anything you know and they didn't find enough on the first search in order to get in and then on the, on the 19th, it kind of all comes together for them, you know, and, and what I end up discovering on my podcast is, you know, that they, the cops had planted the evidence to get back in the, it was, it was mind blowing, man. It's like, I've, I've known this case for 43 years and I start having the police that were, that are still alive, that were working the case disclosing to me. And I'm the first guy. And I kept, I kept wondering, I'm like, why are they telling me that? they planted the evidence to get him. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy because they're all like, well, he's dead. You can't do anything. I'm like, still, it's like, you just changed the narrative of the case forever. It's like this little, so, but that, that's for a different question. I mean, if you let me, I'll drone on for hours, man. So <laughs> just stop, stop me. You know, it's like, so th that's kind of the long and short of it. They end up arresting him on the 21st and, you know, from there he goes to trial and he's executed. Yeah, he was convicted of all 33 murders, sentenced to death. He was executed in 1994. Correct. Um, and and the, the case is fascinating. I could let you go on and on for hours, too. But I think the better thing to do is for everybody to go check out the Defense Diaries. Uh, the season one, there as of now, there's 33 episodes, uh, plus some bonuses. And you said you're planning more cases, more seasons to come, right? Yeah. So 33 is our, our end game, which obviously matches the number of victims. Uh <laughs> So we figured that's a good number, you know, like we had to give it an end because otherwise I would just keep going forever. Um, and you know, infinitum. So I, I so yeah, 33 is it. It's a two parter cause it would have been five hours <laughs> and I don't know that there's any five hour episodes of podcasts, but I think it's, it's a bit much for people to handle. So we split it up into a couple of parts, but we've done some amazing things. You know, I was able to coax my father into reading his opening statement. And then I got the lead prosecutor, which we just recorded last week, to to read his entire closing argument, which is pretty fucking cool, man. Um, you know, and he did it in his house. And it was just, you know, and it's like at this point, they're two old men, you know, and then like right. kind of reading what they did 40 years ago at the prime of their lives. It's it's pretty moving. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to be done with Gacy. I handled another case, and I, I know that you've interviewed um, Kelly Brink before, but it's a case that I handled. She did a five-part kind of collaboration with me about this case that I handled personally um, in Omaha, Nebraska, Dr. Anthony Garcia, just an insane, insane case, insane case, man. It's like mm -hmm. Chen Wise done an episode. I think they did a two-parter two on it, and I've seen a few different, few different pods on it, but it was just an unbelievable case and it was the only case that i ever tried with my father so um from a procedural standpoint it blows gacy out of the water it was unbelievable man and and you know it, part of that podcast in terms of the second season is going to be challenging for me because i obviously represented him 
we put right. forth an amazing defense, you know? So that's one of the things, like when you put forth such a good defense, do you uh, like kind of convince yourself that you didn't do it? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was kind uh, of, one, it was kind of one of those things where I'm like, man, you know, cause like, look, I'm not a robot. I'm a human. I mean, I have to do my job. So like what I was talking about, like in terms of checking my morality at the door so I can do my job properly, I'm still thinking, you know, I'm like, I'm like, well, fuck. I mean, did this guy, did he do it? You know, I mean, you can only imagine Allison's my trial partner along with my father. We had many, many conversations about, you know, did this guy do it or didn't he? And, you know, cause he always maintained his innocence. Our client always, always, always maintained his innocence. And we did, we really put together a really very strong defense. Now they had tried him in the press out there. And, and again, Google this, this case, it's Dr. Anthony Garcia. It's basically, he was a serial killer. There's some dispute whether he's actually a serial killer, but over a course of five years, he killed four different people, two on each side of murder. So one was just beyond like, I didn't know if I was going to be able to handle the case just because I couldn't, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to look at the pictures of the 10 year old boy that he murdered brutally, uh, with knives, stabbed him, left knives in his neck. And I'm, I'm, I'm queasy. It's like, I'm in a weird game for me to be kind of queasy when it comes to blood and stuff like that. But I just am. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like going into it, I, I was very concerned that I'd be able to even look at the images of Thomas Hunter and be able to handle it, you know, because a trial, they're going to be putting those up and I've got to be going through it with our experts and all that stuff. So, you know, these, these two set of murders that take place over five years from 2008 to then 2013, there's this gap. And, you know, at that point it had been a cold case from the 2008 murders, which was Thomas Hunter, the young 10 year old boy and the housekeeper. And The doctor who owned the house was at work at that time. So the killings took place like right after Thomas got home from school in the home of Thomas Hunter. So then fast forward to 2013, another doctor is killed, him and his wife, both in their probably late 60s are murdered brutally in another sleepy bedroom neighborhood, Um, you know, where stuff like this just does not occur. And at that point, the, the Hunter case had gone cold and the Omaha PD had done yeoman's work. I mean, they were really, they, they really investigated the hell out of it, you know, cause it was, it was kind of the up aside from like where Warren Buffett lives, you know, I mean, it, it's like the most upscale neighborhood in Omaha, you know, it's like stuff like that does not happen there. So, you know, they took it seriously um, and they just couldn't, they couldn't crack it. So after the second set, you know, they basically go to Creighton University, which is the university that has the common thread between that. That's that's what they can figure is the common thread between the two sets of killings. And they go to the the department and they say, look, we need, because this guy was a doctor and he was in the forensic pathology department at Creighton for his residency. And they said, we need anybody who's had beef in the last 20 years with this department, you know, um, because both there was a connection from the father of the boy who was killed was the chair of the department of the forensic pathology department in Creighton. And the gentleman who was killed in 2013 was the director. Okay. So there was a connection there between Creighton. And so then they start, they give him a list and then the cops are all assigned a different name. And this, this cop, Derek Moise gets my guy and you know, the subpoena, cause you don't have to have, uh, they basically subpoena his, bank records and his phone records and they get pings on both they find out that he was in omaha on the day of the the murder of the 13th never speak to him never never pulled him in for questioning they just assume he's the guy because he's there and you know as far as they know he has no reason to be there other than to kill these two people so they end up arresting him and uh from there you know we get retained by his family out in california and we drive down and you know, man, and they hated us. <laughs> right. I, I cannot tell you how much they hated us in Omaha. And it, it's like, you know, I didn't kill the people, you know, I'm just doing my job. You know what I mean? But it's a death penalty case. And if they're going to kill somebody, I'm going to make sure that they're going to, they're going to prove their case. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, right. If it's a death penalty case, that's as serious as it gets, you know, from the criminal justice side of it. It's like, if you're going to kill them, Make sure you have the evidence because there's nothing more abhorrent other than, you know, killing an innocent person than 
killing another innocent person who didn't do it, you know, um, and who spent 15 years in prison, most likely on a crime they didn't commit only to be executed. So I take that part of it pretty seriously, you know, so we went in and we litigated it really, really hard, you know, and my wife wrote some pretty amazing motion. <laughs> I mean, we fought it really, really hard and they, they resented us for it, you know? And so, yeah, so that's what the second season ends is going to be about. And then we're going to transition at some point to the second part of the Gacy thing where we're going to really kind of be digging into not so much the case itself, but to try to see if there's more victims out there because, and what we really, really want to do more than anything else is to uh, try to help identify these five final victims, you know, so that, that, that those are a couple of the things that we're really going to try to focus on with that. Well, it's awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, his name is Bob Mata the second. The podcast is called Defense Diaries. Uh, season one, you've got plenty to binge on. Season one already has 33 episodes. Uh, season one is the Gacy Tapes. And as you just heard, more to come. Check it out. It could be your next big true crime binge. Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Bob. I really, really appreciate And sorry, I talked the whole time. <laughs> That's right. They don't tune in to hear me. <laughs> I appreciate you, man. I really do. Thanks so much for having me. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.